Welcome to Verified Rx, your prescription for success. Brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. One of the things I wasn't expecting from this panel was the discussion from anesthesiologists about how fearful they are that their anesthesiologist residents are losing the art of reversing with neostigmine because they almost preferentially use Sigamidex in their academic medical centers. Reversal of neuromuscular blockade in a perioperative setting is an important tool for improving patient outcomes and throughput. Market developments in the past decade have complicated management options for patients in this setting. I'm Gretchen Brummel, Pharmacy Executive Director in the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence and your program host. Here with me today to dive into the nuances of care are Eric Johnson, perioperative clinical pharmacist at University of Kentucky Healthcare, and my Vizient colleague, Stacey Lauderdale, Senior Director of Drug Information in the Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence here at Vizient. Welcome, Eric and Stacey. Thanks, Gretchen. It's great to be back on the podcast. Thanks, Gretchen. Happy to be here. Eric, how are neuromuscular blockers used in the perioperative setting currently? There's a couple different roles that neuromuscular blockers play in the perioperative area. The first, and somewhat obvious, is to help facilitate endotracheal tube placement during rapid sequence intubation. This can be accomplished with either a depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agent, such as succinylcholine, or non-depolarizing neuromuscular blocking agents, such as rocuronium or vecuronium. The second role they play is intraoperatively is to help facilitate an optimal surgical field. We've seen a greater emphasis on patients that are deep or fully paralyzed during surgical procedure in hopes of helping to facilitate better conditions in laparoscopic surgeries. And why is the ability to reverse neuromuscular blockade so important for quality of care? There's a couple of reasons why we put a lot of emphasis on this. First being the complete reversal of neuromuscular blockade being an important step to prevent or decrease the incidence of residual neuromuscular blockade adverse events. These include things such as pharyngeal dysfunction, airway obstruction, or the risk of aspiration. All of these may lead to more significant outcomes such as reintubation, pneumonias, or increased hospital length of stay for the patient. Now, the goalpost has moved slightly on what we define as complete reversal of neuromuscular blockade. Historically, we've thought of a train of four ratio of 0.7 as the marker at which a patient no longer feels or experiences any residual neuromuscular blockade. A significant amount of research has shown that patients actually up until a point of 0.9 on a train of four ratio may experience symptoms of a residual neuromuscular blockade. So that increased emphasis and increased awareness has led to a lot of important insight and focus on that area of practice. That's useful information. This area, specifically a chosen reversal strategy, has received a lot of attention in the past five years. Stacy, why is that? Well, I think, Gretchen, to do justice to the story, we have to go all the way back to 2013 when neostigmine, which was arguably the gold standard in 2013 for reversal, received FDA approval for the first time, even though it had been marketed as an unapproved drug since the 1930s. And when it was FDA approved, what happened is all the non-FDA-approved versions of neostigmine had to be removed from the market, leaving just a sole supplier for neostigmine. And the sole supplier of neostigmine increased the cost of neostigmine 
by about 450% at the time. And so it was almost a sticker shock for many hospitals at the cost of neostigmine. And between 2013 and 2015, we didn't have any competitors. So neostigmine was very costly for our member hospitals. Then in 2015, what happened is we finally got another neostigmine product on the market. But by that time, Sagamidex had also been approved. And Sagamidex definitely had some theoretical advantages over neostigmine. And when it first entered the market, it was about at the same price point as neostigmine. So in my opinion, this caused Sagamidex to gain some market share. Well, over the years, since 2015, what we've seen is neostigmine's price has dropped as it's become a multi-source product. And now the price differential between Sagamidex and neostigmine is quite large. And it's caused many member hospitals to question, you know, really the additional value of Sagamidex over neostigmine. Well, that's quite a history. And how have we seen the market shift lately? Speaking specifically for our institution, I can say that we followed a pattern fairly similar to what Stacy described. When Sugamidex came out on the market, we made an attempt to bring it on formulary and restrict it to somewhat specific patient populations. We quickly found that those use criteria were a little bit more generous than what we initially envisioned. And before long, we found that our institutional use was approximately 90% Sugamidex and 10% neostigmine glycopyrrolate. And Stacey, what have you seen at Vizient? So Gretchen, we get a lot of questions around Sagamidex from our membership. And so we've actually looked into our data. Each year we publish two pharmacy market outlooks. And I believe, Gretchen, you had our editor of our pharmacy market outlook on a previous podcast. Yes, we did. Yeah. And on this last iteration, which I'm sure she did a great job of explaining, it looks at total member spend between March 2020 and April 2021. And in this particular iteration, we specifically looked at those drugs that are almost solely purchased in the acute care setting. And what we found was that Sigamidex is the number three top spin drug in the acute care setting just behind vasopressin and albumin. So certainly a top spin for our members. That's definitely enlightening info. With the market shift to Sigamidex, it must have some incremental value over other agents in terms of clinical benefit. Is that the case? There definitely are benefits of Sugamidex over neostigmine. The first most obvious is definitely its ability to reverse from a deeper level. Whereas neostigmine is recommended for light to moderate levels of neuromuscular blockade, Sugamidex may reverse the effects of neuromuscular blockade to a deeper level, all the way up to a one to two post-titanic count level. The next benefit that Sugamidex has is its lack of cardiovascular effects. Many of the neostigmine and glycopyrrolate exhibit both cholinergic and anticholinergic effects, leading to potential bradycardia or tachycardia. Sugamidex, on the other hand, has not been shown to have or exhibit any of these types of effects. Additionally, studies have shown that there is less residual neuromuscular blockade with Sugamidex. It hasn't eliminated its incidence entirely, but studies certainly show a lower incidence overall. And then most importantly, some of the pharmacokinetics of Sugamidex are definitely more optimal. Its onset of action is hands down faster than neostigmine glycopyrrolate. It's fairly straightforward when it comes to dosing based on your level of neuromuscular blockade. And those predictable pharmacokinetics have really helped in situations where neuromuscular blockade monitoring may be challenging or impossible. Now, I'm certainly not advocating for the lack of neuromuscular blocker monitoring during surgery. However, surgical procedures where the hands are tucked for the procedure or you're unable to place the leads on a forehead because the patient is somewhat sweaty, 
may create scenarios where neuromuscular blocker monitoring is difficult or impossible. In those situations, perhaps Sugamidex may provide better benefit and less likely to have adverse effects. Well, I can see where that would be a potentially helpful tool in the toolkit. It sounds like Sugamidex could perhaps even be a contender to replace neostigmine in this setting. Eric, what's the story there? The issue is likely a little bit more complex than just reversal, so let me try to explain it a little bit. First, there's definitely a safety and quality factor. There's a temptation to really pin neuromuscular reversal agents as the sole contributor to poor outcomes related to neuromuscular blocker use. However, we see that this reversal strategy is just one of a constellation of factors that really contribute to large postoperative adverse effects. Other things that should be considered are the appropriate neuromuscular blocker choice, appropriate dosing of these agents, whether or not neuromuscular monitoring is used intraoperatively, and then issues related to the surgical procedure itself, such as the tidal volumes that the anesthesiologist chooses to use during the procedure or fluid administration may contribute to factors that play a role in contributing to these large post-op adverse effects that may or may not be assuaged by Sugamidex. We've definitely seen studies that have shown that Sugamidex can reverse from a deeper level of blockade and faster than neostigmine. However, the design of those current studies cannot conclusively determine whether Sugamidex can reduce some of these clinically significant postoperative respiratory complications. Last, but certainly the most important factor, is the therapeutic cost debate. While Stacy may have mentioned that the cost of Sugamidex and neostigmine continue to grow, that can become very significant when you look at institutions that are doing 20 to 30,000 surgical procedures per year. With a lack of monitoring and increased doses of Sugamidex during the surgical period, you can see those costs is compounded even further. I can see how that cost difference could add up. Well, with a complex therapeutic controversy like this and no easy answer, it does seem like a good idea to convene an expert panel to weigh in. Stacy, I know Vizient has done some work on this. Can you give us a preview? Sure, Gretchen. You know that Vizient enjoys conducting expert panels. And I know listeners of Verified Rx podcasts know that we've done an expert panel in the past on Indexinet and more recently on ERAS. So we couldn't pass up a chance to also convene an expert panel on this very important topic as well. So in June, we did go ahead and convene an expert panel of 12 multidisciplinary. We had anesthesiologists, we had nurse anesthetists, as well as pharmacists sit on the panel, and we asked them to review the comparative effectiveness of Sigamidex versus neostigmine based on the literature, as well as provide their expert opinion based on their clinical expertise. And what outcomes did you end up looking at? You know, when you do one of these panels, one of the most important things I think you can do is choose the correct outcomes to look at. And for Sigamidex and neostigmine, it's very tempting to look at some of the advantages that Eric has already outlined for us. Scamidex is quicker and it has more reliable pharmacokinetics. And one of the things I told the panelists before we started the panel is that we all agree that Sigamidex reverses more quickly and has more predictable pharmacokinetics. But the focus of this panel is really to look at those outcomes that have a measurable impact on patient quality or safety and or even cost. And so the outcomes that we chose for the panel are as follows. We looked at postoperative uh, pulmonary complications. We looked at PACU efficiency in terms of readiness for discharge or time to discharge. We looked at PACU respiratory events, both including pork, which is postoperative residual curization, or excluding pork. 
And lastly, we looked at operating room efficiency, really to determine if we could increase the number of surgical cases per day if we use a Gamadex versus neostigmine. I don't think you've published your report yet, but can you walk us through the panel's conclusions and really how you got there? Yeah, we are currently right in the middle of writing up the report. And I think, Gretchen, for this question, what I might focus on is the findings from the panel on just the comparative effectiveness review. And for listeners that haven't listened to our previous podcast on these panels, Avizient uses the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review matrix to rate the comparative effectiveness of two agents. And for our listeners that aren't familiar with that particular tool, I encourage you to go to the ICER website. It does a very nice job of explaining this tool. But it is a nice qualitative tool to use in a group-like setting like these panels are. But just to give a very high-level review of the tool, it asks a group of individuals to determine the magnitude of difference between two therapies, the so-called point estimate, and then to put a conceptual confidence interval around that point estimate. And the ratings for the ICER matrix for comparative effectiveness range from A, meaning that Sigamidex is better than neostigmine, to B, which means that Sigamidex may be incrementally better than neostigmine, to C, meaning that Sigamidex is at least comparable to neostigmine, all the way down to I, which means that the evidence is so inconclusive we cannot draw a conclusion. Now, I'll tell you right off that the panel did not reach a consensus on all the outcomes we evaluated, but I will tell you that we did reach a consensus on a few. And the point estimate that they reached a consensus on was C, suggesting that Sigamidex is at least comparable in the mind of the panel to neostigmine for postoperative respiratory complications, for PACU respiratory complications excluding pork, and for operating room efficiency. For the rest of them, we did not reach a consensus. But where I think the panel struggled to reach consensus was really around the conceptual confidence interval. About half of my panel said that they thought that Sigamidex ranged anywhere from comparable to slightly better than neostigmine for those outcomes, whereas about half of them said, you know what, I think that Sigamidex may range anywhere from comparable to actually better than neostigmine. And to me, this lack of consensus on the confidence intervals really suggests to me that the evidence is very confounded and we can't make a lot of definitive conclusions based on it. Well, we will look forward to that final report. Stacey, what else did the panel weigh in on? So the panel was asked a lot of expert opinion-based questions. And some of these included the importance of quantitative versus qualitative monitoring. That was a large part of our discussion. We also examined and discussed patients or surgical characteristics that may favor one reversal agent over another. We discussed evidence-based strategies for Sigamidex dosing. I know there's been a lot of questions on listservs regarding, can I use adjusted body weight? Can I use ideal body weight? I'm trying to save money. And so we had those discussions. And lastly, we looked at selection of reversal agent as well as reversal agent dose based on depth block. Tell me, what's your top takeaway from this process? For me, one of the things I wasn't expecting from this panel was the discussion from anesthesiologists about how fearful they are that their anesthesiologist residents are losing the art of reversing with neostigmine because they almost preferentially use Sigamidex in their academic medical centers. I think that's a great point. And we've encountered a similar situation at our institution. When we've looked at perhaps removing one of our inhaled anesthetics from formulary, we currently have three. The anesthesia department was very adamant that their anesthesia residents must be able to be trained on all three different types of inhaled anesthetics and be able to utilize them in any situation. 
I think that parallels very well with residents being able to be trained and utilize two different types of reversal agents. Well, I can see that perspective. Stacy. when do you expect to see the final report published? And can you maybe give us a sneak peek of anything else we can expect? So we hope to have it published in fourth quarter of 2021. In addition to summarizing the findings from the panel, we're also hoping to include some utilization data around Sagamidex versus neostigmine from our clinical database, as well as some costs around operating room and PACU from our operating database. We also hope to include some information on the different neuromuscular monitors available out there in the marketplace, since that certainly was a major topic of discussion within the panel. I think train of floor monitoring and a pharmacist's utility and understanding of how they work is extremely important. You know, as pharmacists, we really do own pharmacotherapy and therapeutic drug monitoring. And while train of floor monitoring isn't therapeutic drug monitoring, it certainly is a surrogate for it. So pharmacists to be fully versed in it, I think is very important and was an important takeaway from this meeting. I can appreciate that. Eric and Stacy, thank you so much for joining us today to share your insights and expertise. It's been great hearing from you. And to our listeners, please join us for more Verified Rx podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments. We'd love to hear from you. Verified Rx is your prescription for success and is brought to you by the Vizient Center for Pharmacy Practice Excellence. I'm Gretchen Brummel. Thanks for listening.